The subject matter this morning is hard to hear for some of you, maybe hard to hear for all of us, especially if you embrace more of a cultural Christianity. Perhaps some of you are second, third generation Christians, and you have brought the traditions of Christianity from your parents or grandparents, but you have not brought the convictions This morning will be really hard to hear for you, and it may not make sense. What we simply do is is preach through the Bible, and if something comes up, we talk about it, even if it's hard to hear. So with that introduction, I'm going to do a little something, tell you a, a story from history. You ready for this? There was once a man, and his name was Polycarp. He was a leader in the early Christian church at a city called Smyrna in Asia Minor. This city was notorious for its worship of the Roman emperor. You could worship as many gods as you you wanted to, but you had to also worship the Roman emperor. And the city council was so intent on its citizens worshiping the emperor that they would give them some money so they could go buy sacrifices and make this sacrifice to the Roman emperor. But Polycarp would have none of it. He would only worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And those within the city took notice. They arrested him, and they put him under trial for refusing to worship the emperor. And the accusation against him read like this. He was a puller down of our gods, teaching many not to sacrifice or worship. He was sentenced to death, a burning They're burning him, and he's not dying. So they they took a spear, and they pierced him with a spear. And it was said that as he faced death, he said this. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season, and after a little while is quenched. But you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. Who talks like that? You you know people that talk like that? He said this as well. I bless you, Father, for judging me worthy of this hour, so that in the company of the martyrs I may share the cup of Christ. Who talks like that? Do you know someone that talks like that? Where you're being burned, you're going you're to talk like that? Can you imagine his, his roots in Christ go down so deep that as he is being killed, he is professing the name of Christ all the way to his death. I don't know about you, but I want to talk like that. I want to be so rooted deep in Christ that if I am threatened for my faith, I'm going to go out swinging and giving glory to God. I want that for you too. If you are ever faced with persecution for Jesus, I'm, I'm, I'm making it the aim today that you will be faithful unto death. Like I said, if you're, if you're a cultural Christian and this is a second generation thing for you and, and you're just showing up to church because that's what you're supposed to do, this is going to be hard for you to hear. Today, I want to prepare you to die. I want to prepare you to be burned for your faith. 
and I'm not being dramatic. I'm going to use some biblical language here from the book of Romans. I want to prepare you to be slaughtered. If the situation ever called for it, that you would be strong and firm in your faith until the end. Now, I know many of you have grown up in churches and you've attended churches, and we will have sermon series on how to be a, a better parent, right? We'll have sermon series on marriage. We'll have sermon series on how to have a, a great career or a sermon series of what to do in, in retirement. But I think we need more sermons talking about how to stand firm and possibly die for Christ. That's where we're going this morning. That's the aim. Be faithful unto death. We have an opportunity to learn from a passage, and this passage likely influenced Polycarp. And it's in the book of Revelation. You might want to go ahead and turn there. It's in Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. Now get this. This was written a few years before Polycarp by John, and it has been said that John knew Polycarp and likely maybe even discipled him and influenced him. And Polycarp, he was familiar with this passage all the way to his death. So let's go ahead and read it together. I'll read it to you. Let's go ahead and stand up as I read Revelation 2. Revelation 2, 8 through 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten, ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. You may be seated. As we're going through the book of Revelation, we find ourselves in chapters 2 and 3. And what we have are Jesus' words of confrontation and comfort to the seven churches. And they each kind of follow a similar pattern. Jesus commands John to write. He gives a self-identification of himself. He confronts the churches, right, to change. And then he also tells them what they're doing right. And if they persevere, he'll give them a reward. It's, it's a similar pattern. Now, these letters are written to each church because they each have a specific, unique situation. But all the other seven churches were meant to read each other's mail. In fact, these letters were to go throughout the region and influence all the churches, including churches throughout history on down to today. And as we go through each letter, we are to ask ourselves, what is Jesus saying to us? And as we read this letter to Smyrna, we see that his emphasis is, be faithful unto death. Let's go ahead and jump into it. Verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. 
Now, this city, Smyrna, of all the ones mentioned in the letters, is, is likely the only one that is still around today. Of the, it's the modern city of Izmir in Turkey. Smyrna was about 35 miles uh, away from Ephesus, and it's a seaport city. Its claim to fame, you may know this, its claim to fame is that it was the supposed birthplace of Homer, as in the Iliad and not Simpson. Back in the day, it was the central hub of emperor worship as there was a temple dedicated to the emperor Tiberius. And those who refused to participate in the cult of the emperor could be punished with death. Obviously, the church in Smyrna is not going to worship the emperor and they are under the threat of punishment and death. As we address each church, Jesus gives a self-identification to comfort the church. Back in Ephesus, he said, I'm the one who walks among the lampstands. I see what's going on. I, I see your good works, but you're lacking in love. Now, as he walks among also Smyrna, he sees their persecution. And I want you to notice his self-identification to bring them encouragement and comfort. First, he calls himself the first and the last. Did you notice that? He is the eternally existent one. He's God. He's not only in charge of their past and their future, but also their present suffering. Notice as well that he's not only eternal, but he is also, you see it there, he's the living one who died and came to life. He was crucified on the cross at the hands of sinners and came back to life. Three days later, he, just, he defeated death and destroyed the devil who has the power of death. Now this church in Smyrna is under persecution. And as Jesus rose, so one day in him, they will also rise. They desperately needed this living Jesus. They needed him because they're facing this persecution. And many will soon die in Christ, but they will come back to life. You got it? Here's the encouragement. Jesus says, I'm the eternal one, and I am the living one. That's supposed to encourage persecuted Christians. And I would think that that self-identification of Christ has encouraged persecuted Christians on down through time. And if you were facing uh, threats for your life, it would encourage you as well. I was talking to a friend recently. He's from Chicago area. And he told me this story about his parents. His parents, they were at home one day, and they got a knock on the door. And it was the, uh, someone claiming to be the FBI. And so we just want to let you know, it's part of the law, we have to do this, that you are on an ISIS kill list. They're like, we're on an ISIS kill list? We live in Chicago, what are you talking about? And so they, they went to the, the police and they said, hey, look, some people came by our door, they said they were the FBI, they said we're on an ISIS kill list, and the police said, yeah, that's legit. When you're put on an ISIS kill list, the FBI has to, has to let you know. And what, what, apparently what an ISIS kill list is, is they, they, they compile, ISIS puts on the internet a list of people along with their addresses, and they're hoping that lone assailants in America will go to your address and kill you. It's real. It's a real thing. Can you imagine if you were put on an ISIS kill list and someone came to your door and knocked on it and said, you know, you're on this list, and maybe it's because you, you were a Christian? I mean, like, what do you do next? Do you, do you relocate? Do you move? What, what do you do? You're under the threat. Is it going to happen or not going to happen? What's going to happen? What does Jesus say? He says, I'm the eternal one. I'm the living one. There's something about 
when you're under the threat, those words pop, right? Those identifications of Christ pop in your life, that he is the eternal one. He is the living one. Look what the eternal and the living one says. Verse 9. Jesus says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Jesus knows what's going on in Smyrna. He sees their tribulation, their poverty, and slander. Remember, Christ has no critique of this church. But I'm not sure I would share the same outlook. If our church was having a hard time financially and were facing external criticism and impending persecution, I would probably freak out. We have an elder meeting this Tuesday. I would go to the elder meeting and I would say, guys, it's all over with. We're lacking in finances. People are criticizing us. And we've had some threats against our church. And I'd be thinking, let's come up with a plan. Let's fix this. And Jesus is like, you're in a great place. I see you. You're right where I want you. He's commending them. Let me try to piece together their persecution. We, we, we bear with me for a moment. I want to kind of piece together because on the whole, in this context, in these verses here, the Jews in this area are opposing Christians. And you may ask, why are the Jews opposing Christians? Let, let me explain to you. Some of the accusations the Jews had against the Christians at this time, they called Christians cannibals. Why would they call Christians cannibals? Because they're eating the body and the blood of Jesus apparently, right, in their services. They also called them homewreckers because when people would convert to Christianity, the Jews would often kick them out of their families. They also called the Christians immoral because they kept running around calling each other brothers and sisters. So they're immoral. Now, the Jews had this special relationship with Rome. Rome let them be exempt from emperor worship. They let them slide. They said, okay, you're you're exempt from emperor worship. We'll allow you to not worship the emperor. But times are changing in the Jews' relationship with Rome because the temple, you know, the whole revolt back in Jerusalem and the temple being burned down, there's some tensions between Rome and the Jews. So So the Jews want to stay on the good side of Rome. And what do they do? They start to turn on the Christians. The Christians kind of fell under this exempt status because they were seen kind of as a Jewish... uh, sacked early on, but now the Jews are like, no, 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 you're not part of us. You on your own. And they were turning Christians in to Rome because they would not worship the emperor. And this went on for years. In fact, it was probably the Jews who turned in Polycarp. And history tells us that some of the Jews even gathered wood on the Sabbath to burn Polycarp. In this context, in this context right here, Jesus calls them, did you notice it there? In verse 9, he calls them a synagogue of Satan. Some strong words. Satan was behind the attack of the Jews to destroy the Christians. Now, these are not anti-Semitic remarks here because we would desire the Jews to be saved. But the Jews at this time were persecuting the church, right? And in fact, it was nothing new because they also had interactions with Jesus during his time. And you remember what Jesus said to the Jews during his time in John eight forty four. These are the religious leaders. He said to them, he said, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. 
He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So Jesus says, your father to these religious leaders is the devil. And something as similar is going on here. He calls these Jews, persecuting the Christians, he calls them a synagogue of Satan. That's pretty strong words. Let's keep going. Verse 10. He says to them, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. The church is undergoing some serious suffering, but it's going to be upped. And specifically, the reference is for 10 days. That may be a flashback to the time of Daniel. When Daniel was in Babylon, he refused to eat the king's food because it was sacrificed to idols. For 10 days, Daniel and his friends were observed by the official, and the Lord sustained their health as they flourished. Similarly, the church at Smyrna is tested for 10 days to see their spiritual health. They will not compromise and engage in worshiping the emperor, but will follow the Lord alone. Notice again, verse 10, Jesus says, For 10 days the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. And the intent of the persecution, I hope you see it there in verse 10, the intent of the persecution, it says, that you may be tested. When a believer is tested, it often reveals who believes and who is not a believer. Testing shows what kind of fruit it is. If you're truly a believer bearing fruit, your fruit will last through the testing. And if it is not legit fruit, you know this. Someone has once said, wax fruit melts under heat. If you're not truly a believer and the heat comes on, you will bail. I want you to notice something. I want you to take Satan's point of view and God's point of view with regard to the testing. Satan's point of view is to, is to make you compromise, to make you deny your faith. That's what his intent is through testing you. But God's point of view, when he's testing you, he's testing you to show the quality of your faith. When trials come your way, persecution comes your way, that's God testing you, make you firm and strong and steadfast. We saw last year as we went through the book of James, James chapter 1, verse 3. James says, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And that's what you want. You want steadfastness. You want a life without compromise. You want these, these testings that they come your way, even if they may be small. You want to remain strong, firm, and steadfast. And small stuff and small testings will come your way. And perhaps that's leading up to some of the big testings in life. I'm going to kind of, I'm going to kind of pause for a moment and kind of pull back and, and just ask the question. Are we... Where we live, I know some of you are from countries where the testing and the trials and the persecution is really high, but are we in America, where we're at today, under any form of testing, trials, or persecution? I was reading an article recently, and I'm just going to share, I rarely do this, but I want to share a little bit with you from this uh, woman named K.A. Ellis. Um, she, she writes in an article with the question, are U.S. Christians really persecuted? 
And she, she says when she discusses the rise in anti-Christianity in the States, she's hesitant to use the word persecution. But as she travels the world and she talks to believers in different countries, she's rethinking what's happening to us in the States. For example, she was interacting with a, a Christian from the Middle East, and this Christian in an underground church said this, Persecution is easier to understand when it's physical, torture, death, imprisonment. American persecution is like an advanced stage of cancer. It eats away at you, yet you cannot feel it. This is the worst kind of persecution. And then she interacted with another believer that's in uh, Syria who remained there to help Christians out. This is what a Syrian believer says. It wasn't only ISIS who laid waste to the church. Our cultural compromises with the government and our divisions against each other brewed for a long time. We are Damascus, the seat of Christianity. What happened to us can happen to you. Be careful. And she says in her article is that when persecuted Christian leaders overseas warn us about how seriously U.S. Christians are marginalized, it's time to listen. Let's continue to branch out a little bit more. She says, rarely does a nation, this is key, rarely does a nation move from freedom to oppression overnight. Realists understand that while the U.S. Constitution promises inalienable rights to all the citizens, those rights are not always guaranteed for the church. And she goes on to say that today, cultural disdain toward Christianity is increasingly palpable. Though we may not be under the heat of violent threats and death, she thinks that can switch quickly. So let's talk about some of the small testings. If you are a medical doctor or in the medical field, maybe there'll be some pressure and some heat brought upon you with regard to right-to-life issues, whether it be for the unborn or euthanasia for those who are older. Maybe there'll be some pressure and some legalities that's going to try to force you to participate what will you do? And let's get real specific now. There are some of you who are part of campus ministry. And I don't need to see a show of hands, but many of you are part of InterVarsity and the various groups of InterVarsity, AAIV, maybe GCFS, and a variety of other InterVarsity movements at Northwestern. Just a few days ago, the president of InterVarsity said, you know what? We're making a statement that's always been true of us, that marriage must be between a man and a woman. And if any of our staff supports homosexual marriage, then they must resign. They're just keeping with biblical beliefs. What may happen at your campus this week is some of your friends may say, hey, what do you think about that? And that will give you an opportunity to explain what you believe from the Bible. It's a small testing. What will you do? Will you hem and haw and act like the Bible doesn't teach it? And I just want to say, the Bible is very, very clear. And if you throw out man and woman marriage and you're supporting homosexual marriage, you're doing something the Bible has never done. The Bible does not teach that. And you'll basically be saying, you know what? The Bible's not relevant. Watch what happens this week on campus especially for those of you part of IV, let me know what happens. These are small testings that come our way that we may not expect. 
The issue is, what are you going to do? Are you going to speak the truth? Are you going to back down? Jesus tells us, you don't need to be afraid. In fact, he specifically says in verse 10, do not fear. There should be no room for fear. And he's saying this to a group of Christians who are under threat for their life. He's saying, do not fear. In Matthew 10, 28, he said, don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Not only is there a cause for no fear, but he says, once again in verse 10, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Be faithful unto death, and you'll get a crown. The the idea is like you get uh, an award for competing in games, like our gold uh, medal for our Olympics or the marathons going on right now. They'll get some sort of prize at the end. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. The crown of life is eternal life. James 1.12 says something similar. It says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Those who press on in their faith until the end will be saved. True Christians will press on, and only those who press on are true Christians. Can I say it again? True Christians will press on in their faith, even under persecution. And only those who press on are true Christians. Finish up with verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. If you have ears, that means that you will respond to the gospel. Spiritual ears to hear. It's similar to the good soil in in Luke 8.15. As for that, in the good soil, they are those who hear hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Those who hear, press on in their faith, are the conquerors and the overcomers. The conquerors are not the ones who are persecuted and then fight back. That's not a conqueror. An overcomer is not the one where you're persecuted, you're ready to duke it out. No, a conqueror are those who press on in Christ, do not compromise, do not bail out, because they know that there is a better life to come. And Jesus assures them they will not be hurt by the second death. (laughs) You You know what the second death is? The second death is hell, an everlasting torment and punishment. Revelation 20, 14 says... This is the second death, the lake of fire. And you may wonder, who, who goes to the lake of fire? Who, who goes to hell? Well, Revelation 21.8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Maybe that describes you. But if you've repented of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ, you will get the crown of life through faith in Jesus Christ. But those who bail on Christ, those who deny Christ, those who do not press on in Jesus will go to the lake of fire. But the assurance is those who press on in Christ, who stand firm in their faith, they will not be hurt by 
the second death. This is a strong word, isn't it, right? Be faithful. Be faithful unto death. You're like, I didn't sign up for that kind of Christianity. I didn't sign up for that. If the situation ever calls for it, may you be prepared to die for Christ. I was thinking about my life, and I I was thinking, I've I've not felt a ton of heat. I've not felt a ton of pushback. There's very, very minimal pushback for my faith uh, in my life. I I had a little bit of pushback uh, this this past week. A a friend of mine, we went out sharing Jesus with others, and as I was talking to this guy uh, about Jesus, we had this long conversation, he called me a bad name. And I'm not going to tell you what he called me because some of the parents would have to explain to their kids what it means. I'm not going to tell you. So he was going off of me. And that's just minimal. We have a voicemail we've saved at the church office. Uh, Some of you went out to share the gospel. I'm not quite sure who it was. But somebody called the church office and left the most vile voicemail you'll ever hear of someone just cussing us out and going off. That's that's small stuff. That's small stuff. That's the pushback. Those are the small testings. Will it turn into something bigger? I don't know. Will the small testings that some of your students may face this week turn into something bigger? I, I, I don't know. But, but the call is to be faithful unto death. I, I, I really, I, I think that if you thought signing up for Christianity meant something else besides following Jesus unto death, I, you, you've been tricked, you, you've been deceived, but not by Jesus. Jesus has never set up following him as an easy road and an easy path. He didn't do this bait and switch thing on you where he says, come, come on, it's going to be easy, it's going to be fine. Oh, now you're following me, now you're going to die. That's never the way he set it up. The call always from the beginning is, come on, come with me, come die with me. In fact, you'll see repeatedly in the New Testament, if you want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. In this world, we will have troubles. In this world, we will have pushback and maybe to the point of death for our faith. If you were tricked into being a Christian, you weren't tricked by Jesus because his words are always clear on what it looks like to follow him. And the call is be faithful unto death. I think it's appropriate here as we finish up is to go back to the initial call of Christ. The call he gave to those who wanted to follow him. And at the very beginning of the initial call of Christ was the mention of death. In fact, the initial call of Christ said, if you're going to follow me, do not deny me. And if you deny me, I will deny you. We are saved by grace through faith. And those who are saved by grace through faith will press on in their faith. And as we finish up here, I'm going to read to you from Mark chapter 8. It's on the screen. It's in your bulletin. You can take this home with you this week. And as we meditate on the words of Christ, we will read this and go into a time of prayer. And this is an opportunity for you to evaluate whether you're in or out following Christ, whether he's really worth your life or not, all of your life, even being faithful unto death. Here's the call. Let me read it to you. Mark 8, 
34 through 38. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Let us pray. Father, you are calling us through Jesus, and you've saved us by your grace through faith. And you've told us to consider what we're getting into. As a king marches off to war, he considers what he's doing before he goes. As a builder considers building, he thinks about what he's going to build. And as we consider and think about your call, you do not trick us. And if anyone in here has been following a cultural Christianity or been tricked, Lord, I just ask that you would open their mind and their heart right now to trust you. To trust you. To trust you and realize that you're worthy of all of them. You're the one that laid down for our, your, our lives, Jesus. You laid down your life to save us through your death and the resurrection. And we embrace you by faith. And now we follow you by faith. I asked specifically for the students this week who will face small testings for their faith. Specifically for those in InterVarsity who may may have significant pushback. Give them wisdom. Help them to give gentle answers full of grace. And help them to also be truthful and loving and kind but help them to be firm. And for those of us who go to workplaces that are hostile, help us to be gracious and kind and give an answer for the faith that we have. And we continue to pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who are losing their heads even this week, who are being killed even this week. And Lord, we we are with them. We are part of your body. If things turn here or don't turn here for better or worse, may we be those who are faithful unto death for the glory of God. In Christ Jesus we pray, amen.